Hey friends, this is Linda, and you're listening to Calling Water, the podcast that examines a passage of scripture and asks the questions, what does it mean and what does it call us to do? In today's episode, No One Except Jesus, we're looking at the story of the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 and what the revelation of his identity as God's son meant for Jesus' disciples and us as well. Let's get started. Hey there, friends of Calling Water. Thanks for tuning in to a brand new guest episode. Today, I'm joined by yet another friend slash co-worker. Seriously, you guys, I work with the best humans in the world, and I'm introducing y'all to them one by one. And today, it's Garrett Shelsta. Garrett is here. Yay, everyone. Yay. Hi, Garrett. Hi. I'm here. <laughs> so Garrett is my counterpart at Grow Curriculum. As some of you know, I'm the director of the kids content at Grow, and Garrett is a director of the youth ministry content, so teenagers. Um, not only is he awesome at his job, um, he's also an awesome human who's just the most generous and friendliest and just knows a lot of stuff and people which is why I'm so excited he's here. Garrett, welcome. Tell our friends a little bit more about yourself. Hi, Linda. Uh, thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, yes, I am new at the company. I've only been working at uh, Stuff You Can Use as a Grow student director for the last eight, six to eight months. I don't know. what It all feels like a giant collapse of time. <laughs> and uh, I have been enjoying it a ton. So it's it's a very different thing. I was a pastor uh, for 12 years before I joined the GROW team. I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is essentially the first city south of Canada in the state of Washington on I-5. So yeah, it's great. It's, it's awesome. I, I enjoy it up here greatly. It's like living in Vancouver, BC, except, uh, you don't have to deal with all of the traffic. And I have four children, uh, which is too many. No offense. <laughs> that's two more than me, so that feels like a lot. <laughs> the joke I the, like the thing I tell people when I have four kids is that is that puts me in like the ninety fifth percentile of like I'm overachieving with kids, but the, 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 the percentile is like four plus. So like me and like the families on the like lifetime channel are like the same, are like the same, like, I don't know, John and K plus eight, the Duggars, I don't know, choose your, choose them. We're all one monolithic group. And there's a big difference between eight kids and four. Let me tell you. I think, um, was it Jim Gaffigan who said that like having four kids or five kids is like you're drowning and then like they throw you a baby. That's literally <laughs> what it feels like. It feels better now. My youngest is in kindergarten. He just turned six. And that's a big like when you're not needing to like help them go to the bathroom anymore, like mm -hmm. then things, things really, that's a game changer. I know you know this, yes. um, especially with four. My wife is from, we, my wife and I have been married for four, 15 years, 15 years, I think, 15, wow, that's a, that's a minute. Yeah, we'll and, edit that so you didn't have to think about it. No, I, well, I, <laughs> 15, that's, yeah, I know. Well, I'm, at some point, what is, like, the years just start coming together. It's a, like, we have a, we are, our marriage is an adolescent right now. It's about to learn to drive. And, oh, great. and we, uh, we love it up here. We have we, lots of soccer. 
proud soccer dad. Like I scream way too loud on the sidelines. <laughs> embarrass my daughter, but it's great. Yeah, that is your job. She needs to learn that. I know. My middle school girl. She's just. She needs. She needs that from me. Yeah, it's a formative part of her growing up. <laughs> Or part of a therapy. I'm not sure. Yes. yes. Eventually therapy for now growing up. (laughs) Well, Garrett, I am so happy you're here to chat about the Bible with me, which I have to remind myself is why you're here, because I'm pretty sure we can chat about everything else for a while. Anytime we have a meeting together, it's like, oh, yeah, we have something like we have. Right. We're supposed to talk about about something. Right. Right. So are you ready to jump into the Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. Yes. Nice. Okay, so today's text is Matthew chapter 17, and it tells the account of what tradition calls the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, So here's a brief summary of what happened. Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, go up to a mountain, which is not at all uncommon for them to retreat like this, usually to pray. Uh, Then two very strange things happen. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2 tells us, there he was transfigured before them he being Jesus. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Then two people appear beside Jesus, Moses and Elijah, both of whom have been deceased for centuries now. Um, And Peter kind of wants to stay on this mountain where all these magical things are happening. And just as he says this, God's voice speaks in verse five saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Then phantom Moses and Elijah, or actual Moses and Elijah, who knows, disappear, and they head down the mountain, and Jesus instructs them to say nothing of this until after his death and resurrection. So there is a lot to unpack here, which is a word we Bible nerds love to use. Um, So Garrett, why don't you start us off with something in this text you want to talk about? Well, first off, I love that it feels like a fever dream. Like, it just, like, the whole thing reads so wild. Like, and it's so, Mm. out of everything else in the book of Matthew, it feels real, like, if when you're reading the book of Matthew from beginning to end, which is how the Bible, like, these these stories were supposed to be read. They were read in a community of people, and they just would read it beginning to end. It really stands out. It is, Mm -hmm. it is very different than the stuff that comes before it and the stuff that comes after it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really important because of all the things that you just said is how strange it feels. It Mm -hmm. really does feel like this very lucid, wild experience. (laughs) Um, And I, like, I I don't know. I, I think that when I, when I read the Bible and something feels strange, particularly inside of the context of how it's being read, it's, the writer is intending to let that sun stand out at you. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. meant to say you need to pay attention to all of the things. And that, I mean, obviously we do that in the Bible in general, but when, when the writer goes out of their way to say, this is different, something profoundly different happened here. When that happens, the details become uh, more acute. Like, I don't know, right. like it, it makes it feel like when, when you're reading it, like everything you need to look at it, like, like under a microscope almost. Right, because every single word and every single description was purposefully chosen and arranged in that way. Yes. It's interesting because you pointed out that um, 
like this happens kind of in the middle of certain events. Yeah. And so I kind of want to back us up a little bit to kind of set the context for kind of what happened prior to the transfiguration, because um, like in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Look at that. My seminary education is coming into play. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I haven't said those words in a long time. Um, Anyway, so the transfiguration event happens not long after Simon Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. So like, for example, if we're following Matthew's text in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples who the masses say Jesus is, and then they give various answers like John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, any of the other prophets. And then Jesus asks, but who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this little exchange used to puzzle me because I grew up in the church and also I have the benefit of living in the future of this text. So Peter's answer doesn't seem extraordinary. We're like, yeah, good job, Peter, A+. Uh, But the fact that Jesus asks his friends this question, like, who do you say I am? leads me to believe that he never really told them outright who he was, and he's allowing even his closest followers to make up their own minds about him and draw their own conclusions, which kind of shows that like even their faith, like the closest to Jesus, even their faith began with discovery and close encounters. And so this whole encounter of the transfiguration just kind of confirms what they suspected to be true. So I kind of I kind of like that it's setting that trajectory for the disciples and then equipping them to go out and do bigger things. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate that. I think the thing that's interesting about that context is that Peter would have had a a, a particular understanding mm-hmm. of what a messiah is. Mm-hmm. Right? So in the in the in the context there would have been this vision of a uh, a political uprising similar to the Maccabean revolt that happened a couple couple of centuries earlier yes. where there would be an overthrow, a violent overthrow of a, of a political order. I think the unique thing about Jesus is, is that he simultaneously affirms those visions, but then subverts them at the same time. There's no spot where you read that the Messiah includes God's own self. Mm-hmm. That there is not a universe where God comes as part of the created order, becomes flesh, and rescues the world from the death that it's already experiencing. Like that was not part of it. So while at the same time Peter acknowledges Jesus as the Savior, mm-hmm. as the Messiah, in the context that he's able to understand, then Jesus says yes and expands that definition in a way that I think leaves them all massively still like what is happening? Like I, that that leaves more questions for them than answers. And like, I think that, that was really well said that how you said that is like, we see that in hindsight and go, Oh yeah, totally. But if you're thinking about that and their experience in real time, like Mm -hmm. what just happened? Right. And then he says, don't tell anyone until I die and then come back to life. And they're like, okay, Uh, sure. That's (laughs) happening. Yeah. Yeah. Because messiahs don't die. Like messiahs lead like, like they, they win their revolutions. Right. Which is why Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. That's my belief, right? Like it's good to be here. Let's stay here. Let's set up shelters for you, Moses, Elijah. Let's just hang out here. Obviously, 
Moses and Elijah represent the two great Hebrew Bible traditions of the prophetic mm-hmm. tradition, the Mosaic, the Mosaic law tradition, the Pharisaical tradition, the, 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 the countercultural tradition, however you want to think about them. And in this moment, you have those two great biblical traditions in, mm-hmm. or representatives of them in one space. But then the voice of God says, this is my son elevating them above the two greatest heroes of the faith. So you have both of these people and Jesus sitting in the center as the elevated vision of them. Mm-hmm. And I love, like, I just love that they're like the way that the biblical writer uh, says, talks about Jesus's clothes. It's like, it's like white, but like mm-hmm. super Clorox white, <laughs> like as a way to distinguish the difference right. that's there. And so I think that that's another thing that I thought was interesting that I, I was thinking about this a little bit more is that um, in the apocalyptic literature that, that is typically thought of as like a, at least in the traditions that I grew up in, thought of as like a, a, a forecasting of the future. But the, in the biblical tradition, it was it was more like an unveiling of what actually is. So this is like an apocalyptic inbreaking moment where where who Jesus is is unveiled before them. The culmination of these two great biblical traditions, um, but also the confession of the like the Messiah, the one that is going to upend the the established orders of things, and 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 and. and there is an, also a designation of identity, of, of, of relational status, of sonship that is there too. That's all happening in this mix. And it's wildly confusing. And it yes. should be wildly confusing. Like it's, <laughs> that's exactly the point. Yeah. Say a little bit more about Jesus being the culmination of these two traditions. Yes. I mean, so the way that I, I would think about it, there's the, the, there's the mosaic tradition, right, from the beginning of the from the beginning of the law of of like, this is what designates God's people as unique amongst other people. And Mm -hmm. as, and, and as they, um, upheld these particular sets of laws, it is what allowed the nations of the world to see that they were distinct from the other places around them. But it was also the way that God was going to hold them in special relationship so that they could become a blessing to the nations. So, mm-hmm. so the, the law always was supposed to be this thing that allowed them to, to continually be the conduit which, by which God blessed the entire world. So yes. by creating a unique people amongst, um, amongst the nations, God created a special people that, that he would then pour his blessing through to bless the entire world. Mm-hmm. Right. And then as we see uh, the Hebrew people being who, who they are through the trauma and the pain that they experienced in Egypt, through through all, all the massive numbers of oppressions and, and takeovers from from violent empires, they became very self-reliant on themselves. And I think there's probably some version of of, of our own humanness of, of wanting to be able to be self-determining. Sure. Mm-hmm. And because of that, then the thing that was always supposed to mark them as unique and distinct to be a blessing became an ends in itself. And then they became very proud of their uniqueness. And so then the prophetic tradition was always there to help keep that Mosaic law tradition in check. When they, mm-hmm. be, when the Hebrew people um, would become too um, like internally motivated or, or, or self-aggrandizing, the prophetic tradition always helped remind them of who they were and what they were always supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they were supposed to be distinct, to be a blessing, that, that, um, 
the the laws in themselves weren't ends in themselves, but a way to point to um, human beings' ultimate end, which is God's own self. And so, like all of those things are 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 happening. So the mosaic and the biblical traditions, and Jesus is the culmination of both. The distinctness mm-hmm. of the covenant people who were supposed to live uniquely set apart lives in order to be a blessing to the entire world, but also the great corrector, the ones that said, hey, you don't exist for yourselves, um, happens at once. So Jesus is doing both of those at once. I love that because it's kind of like, here's the law, here's how you should live. And then the prophets are coming in like, course correct, course correct. And then here comes Jesus like, "Mm, okay, this is how it's done. (laughs) Yes. It was just really um, fascinating to me that that it was Moses and Elijah that showed up to illustrate that relationship. But also I noticed that it's it could be even more obvious than that, in that we're, if we go back to Jesus's conversation with his disciples, it's like, oh, who do they say I am? And they're like, oh, some think you're Moses or Elijah back from the dead, you know? And then here's Moses and Elijah showing up beside him. So Jesus could be like, Actually, I'm not them. So now you can not we can clarify yet. that confusion. Yes, <laughs> so that was that. a really fun imagery that this text put in my mind. Yeah, and I and I also love that it frees me up because I f- feel like that I need to hold so much certainty, especially as as uh, for the past twelve years mm-hmm. being a pastor is like I have to hold. I have so many people around me that have questions and doubts are walking through complex things in their life and they're trying to figure things out. And so I felt like I had to hold a lot of certainty for people um, when I have just as many doubts and questions as they do. And so it becomes very freeing to see like Jesus's closest Mm -hmm. friends get it very (laughs) wrong. (laughs) And I mean, Peter plays that avatar for us the entire time, you know, like this, the one he, that's, that's I his appreciate Peter so better much. For <laughs> so much. He, but he does. He just holds that out like that that space mm-hmm. for us. Um, that there are so many things that I feel really sure about mm-hmm. in the Christian life, and I'm probably wrong about yeah. some of them. And 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 that feels that feels freeing to me because then it lets me hold them all with open-handedness. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that I don't believe true things or I don't have true things to believe. It just lets me hold them all very yeah. open-handed and say, oh God, mm-hmm. what about this? And what about this? Um, because your best friends got it wrong a lot of <laughs> yes. times. And I'm not totally sure about some of these things yet. And so um, I heard one of my favorite biblical scholars, N.T. Wright, he said, someone asked him, like, how sure are you, are you of the things that you believe? And he says, oh, I'm pretty sure of all of them, but I think I'm only right about 80%. <laughs> the problem is, is I don't know which 20% uh-huh. is wrong. And I think that that feels very true a lot of times. I was a very different person entering and leaving seminary, which I think is the goal, right, of seminary. But like when I went into it, I was just so sure of so many different things. And then I left thinking I was sure of absolutely nothing. Um, But like you said, there is so much freedom in that because then that opens you up to learning and growing. And even in the story, like like it ends, like the back end of the story is them being like, what Mm -hmm. in the what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like this profound unveiling of the nature of who Jesus is doesn't lead to more certainty. It leads to more questions. 
But it's an interesting way that the questions are asked. It's not a question as in like it lets me pull away. It's a question of pushing in. It, it, it invites curiosity to Jesus. So that when we have these really profound unveiling moments of understanding who Jesus is in different ways that are the culmination of all of our history and our past. I think what's interesting is, is that Jesus shows that when we have these profound revelations, it, he actually invites us to ask him more questions. The disciples are walking down the mountain. They're like, yo, what, what? Like, what was that? What happened here? What What do you mean by that? Like, what does this mean? Right. You know? And so I think that that's a really helpful invitation right. for me is, is, that, is that when I am sensing that maybe I've gotten it wrong or maybe there's something that's mysterious that I hadn't understood before, that the first person I can run to with those questions is actually yeah. Jesus. And Jesus isn't afraid mm-hmm. of those questions. Jesus mm-hmm. is not concerned about me having it right or wrong because Jesus is the fullness of right mm-hmm. rightness. And so he holds that space for me and I get just to be a, a yeah. human Yeah, no, that's so great because also if we think about the kind of the oral tradition and the way that discourse was held in Jesus's time, it was around questions. It was around asking questions yes. and inviting people to answer those questions and ask more questions and answer questions with more questions, right? And then coming from this more like Western ideology of academics or anything, really, it's kind of like, here's the answer. Now go forth and memorize these answers, right? Like, I mean, you you have experience with catechism, right? Where you just kind of have to remember all of these statements of faith. And that's kind of what we're taught. Um, but in this story in particular, where we can create that space to ask questions and, and wonder and be curious. And I think that's such a great thing to point out. Yeah, I, I, I love this story. <laughs> I know you were stories. really excited about this one. <laughs> I am. I am. I just think it's, the, I think it's one of the most, because like, I mean, I, I work in youth ministry pretty much exclusively. And so there's a lot of conversations around these mountaintop mm-hmm. experiences. And I just like, so this is always, this was always the talk I would give at the end of a camp was from this story. At the end of a camp or at the end of a retreat, everyone feels like they have this profound revelation of who God is. And then I would talk about the story. And it's like, no, you didn't arrive somewhere. Yeah. You had something shown to you and there's more. Like, so keep going yeah. to Jesus. Like the, you're going to walk down the mountain and the, the point of the, of the experience wasn't that you've right. arrived. You're not supposed to institutionalize right. it. Don't put them in tents. <laughs> like, like that. You're missing the point if you're like, if you're like trying to create a program of of mountaintop yes. experience. Something happened, and it invites conversation, it invites relationship, and it, it invites um, curiosity. And I, what I would say is, is like, uh, uh, and I think the way that Matthew would eventually say it, the gospel is like a submission. Mm-hmm to the one who is unveiled to be the son of God, who is subverting the political orders. God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Like it's an invitation to then follow that same mm-hmm. rabbi, that same teacher in the way of life that he's showing yes. us. Um, so the, the revelation isn't the end point. The revelation mm-hmm. is the beginning. And the beginning is really confusing <laughs> at times as we as we see in the story. Yeah. We talked a little bit about like what transpired before the transfiguration. Um, so yeah, let's talk about kind of the aftermath of that, kind of the epilogue of the transfiguration. Um, because it's kind of bookended, right? There's like, this is what we thought, this is what we experienced, and then now there is more we need to do based on what we just 
learned? The thing that always sticks out to me at the end of the story is that there's not a lot of like hubbub. Like it's not like the dis- I'm sure they obviously get down. The disciples are like, "Yo, you wouldn't believe." He was like Clorox <laughs> white clothes. Elijah was there. Moses was there. Peter said some words. It was like a weird fever dream. Like I'm sure they talked about that, but none of that's right. recorded. I mean, like I can't understand. I mean, or maybe they were faithful and they sure. didn't tell anyone. And like. I doubt I it. I mean, <laughs> Matthew kind of wrote about it, so someone told someone. <laughs> I, know. I know. Someone told someone right. at some point, right? And Matthew wasn't there. But, so there's not a lot of fanfare at the end, even though it is utterly unique in the in the narrative arc, right? Um, we see them go up on, like, the whole book of Matthew starts with them on a mountain, the middle mm-hmm. part's on a mountain, they'll end on a mountain, uh, like, when Jesus is crucified. So, like, this is kind of like that that middle mm-hmm. waypoint but then they get down and all that there is is back to the life of ministry there's a demon possessed kid and they're back at it like and i think to me that the invitation always is there is, is that the revelation on the mountain invites the following of jesus back into the mundane mm-hmm. world where there are real problems real issues um very complex family systems and dynamics, seen and unseen things that are hard to deal with. But now you have seen who Jesus is and are following an unveiled version of him. And so you can walk into those spaces with new levels of of confidence, or at least maybe not new, different levels of confidence. Um, because of what you just experienced. That's a wonderful segue into talking about some of the things that this text calls us to do. Um, You mentioned the word invitation a few times. And so that was just all I was thinking about is, yeah, what is this text inviting us to do? Um, One thing that this text calls me to do um, stems from verse eight, where it says, so this is after like, a cloud covered them and God's voice speaks. And verse eight says, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus because um, they were all terrified and they were face down. And then they looked up and there was no one except Jesus. And this verse just stood out to me in this, um, when I read through it this time, because we talk about this all the time on this podcast and basically everywhere else, but the church Christians are unbelievably divided right now, right? Pretty much regarding everything. Sure. We can't agree on anything, on traditions, on what scripture means, how to apply scripture. And we just argue back and forth across denominations along the faith spectrum. And all we keep doing, I feel like, is just clouding up the message. And this passage reminds me that, yeah, like Moses was great. Elijah was great. All of those things that we have learned and have been taught was amazing. But in the end that cloud clears, Jesus is the son the father loves and the one we should listen to. So that's what it calls me to do. It's like rather than nitpicking over like theological minutia and years of tradition and what's right for the church, I would like to encourage us all to look up and see Jesus, right? Like see how he lived, see how he died, see how he lived again and follow that example. Yeah, I think for me this passage really challenges like a part of me because i think that there's like there's the part of the the human part of jesus that we see in most of the book of matthew but here we see the unveiling 
of God's divine nature in Jesus. And I think that I have a tendency to look at Jesus as a good moral teacher, to look at his ethics and his justice as like a, a commendable thing to uh, mm-hmm. to keep doing. And that's all of that is true, obviously is true. Like I look at the Sermon on the Mount as like a, a politic of what it means to live the kingdom mm-hmm. of God on earth. But I think there's also just like a, a, an element of seeing Jesus unveiled as the fullness of God revealed in human form that every question that I anything that any question I've ever had about who God is in the nature of the transcendent at least in the Christian tradition what we say is is that that was revealed fully in Jesus the Apostle Paul in Colossians says that the fullness of God the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus we we didn't always know that God was like Jesus but now because of Jesus we do and so and so I think that there is an element of just Similar to what you were saying, Linda, is is that Jesus is the culmination of a grand, beautiful history and story of the people mm-hmm. of God, and is is the center of everything that Christians say yeah. and believe about the nature yeah. of who God is. And Jesus then is rightfully enthroned in this passage in worship, and so like we you we should bow down before Jesus. And I, I think that to me is always one of the biggest things is that this this passage just allows me space to say all those beautiful things about Jesus are true and he is also the fully divine son of God, the beloved one who is rightfully yeah. to be worshipped um, in Christian worship spaces throughout time presently and going forward. And that that is always very challenging to me because that's a that's a unique claim a unique claim that Christians have is that Jesus is yeah. divine. That all tradition, all religious traditions believe in some version yeah. of a God. What Jesus, what Christians believe is that Jesus is God. And that is wild. Absolutely. I used to be a part of this worship team that would translate songs from South America. So Portuguese, Spanish into Korean and then introduce them to Korean churches here in the States and also in you know, Korea itself. <laughs> and um, there yes. was just this disparity in worship because the way the, that relationship works um, in South American cultures was that it was so familiar, right? Like Jesus is my best friend. Jesus is my lover. Yeah. Jesus is my confidant. You know, like it was very intimate. Yes. And that was totally. a concept that was very unfamiliar to, for example, Korean context where where everything is super hierarchical. So our views of God is like, God, you are way up there and we are like tiny little dust mites. Um, and I oh, yeah. always thought, yeah, like why do we view God so far away? Like God is near us. God is with us. You know, so I always took issue with that. But however, I was just talking with one of our coworkers over the weekend and he said, you know, that's probably a healthier view of God, you know, and I thought that was interesting that he said that because I never thought of it as a good thing. But yeah, we at some point we have gotten so familiar with Jesus that like we forget that divinity and that. There is that distance, yes. which is a good thing, you know? So, 
Yes. Yeah, no, it is it because it it gives the closeness to at least for me. It mm-hmm. gives it meaning because all of a sudden then the one who is close, the one who mm-hmm. knows also is the one that spoke the worlds into existence. Right. Right, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> yes, those like and and so then it gives me hope in the midst of whatever I'm going through that the there is one who has experienced mm-hmm. it but also has um, the power to help yes. transform and change. Garrett, we are so lucky you dropped by to do this close up on scripture. Is there anything else you want to add before you go? No. This was such a pleasure. I'm so happy right now. Because there's one thing that we get to do is we talk a lot about, like, how do we communicate fun mm-hmm. ideas? But we're, like, a little behind the curtain thing. Like, we're typically trying to figure out how other writers are saying the fun <laughs> ideas. And this was so fun because I just got to hear what Linda thinks about <laughs> things. And this was so fun because we don't get to talk about that very much. And so I feel very honored and blessed about it. It's true. We're usually editing words from other people. <laughs> I know. Well, this is so fun, Garrett. Thank you so much for being here. It was such a joy to deep dive the transfiguration story in this much detail with you. And we hope you come back again because that would be amazing. I will come back anytime you ask. <laughs> now I have you on record saying that, so you have to come back. <laughs> Deal. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Garrett. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, everyone. What a fun and illuminating conversation I got to have with Garrett. This transfiguration narrative is such a fascinating one because not only is it something that happened, but there is so much symbolism that we can draw from the story, as well as some implications for what that means for us present day. One central theme that we talked about a lot is just how the transfiguration event was just a culmination of so many things. It showed that Jesus was the one who would synthesize the law and the prophets and also transcend them. It showed the clear intersection of Christ's divinity and his humanity. It also showed that this revelation is in flow with the continuation of ministry and that this mountaintop experience would not be the end all and the disciples couldn't just build shelters and hang out until kingdom come. They would go down the mountain and continue the work, ultimately giving their very lives for the cause. All this because Jesus. So friends, as you go through this week, look to Jesus. More than going through the rituals of spirituality, focus on the person and deity of Jesus, who always demonstrated what the kingdom of God should look like. The very Jesus who invited questions, confusion, and doubt, and allowed even his closest friends to discover who Jesus was on their own. Because in the end, it's not our religion that will save us, that power and grace lies with no one except Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son Jesus and the love he showed while on this earth and continues to show us today. Teach us how to get down from our mountains and walk with you in the context of our daily lives. 
Thank you for the way you gently embrace us whenever we're feeling lost or misguided. Above all the traditions and routines we have established for ourselves to draw close to you, remind us that you sent Jesus to be the best and in fact only way to you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.